Change is coming atop the ACC, while Virginia Tech celebrates the anniversary of its move into the conference. And UVA joined the growing list of schools bringing athletes back to campus. But are we really any closer to having football this fall? We'll talk about all that and much more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 14 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, the ACC beat writer for the paper, and here with me as always is my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. And David, you had uh, an actual real live sporting experience uh, this past week to share with us, which in these times... uh, qualifies as exciting you went to an actual baseball game is that right yeah it was it was last night in fact the the first live sporting event that i have attended since the evening of march 11th in the acc basketball tournament in greensboro and it was in hampton the coastal plain leagues peninsula pilots it's one of the few uh summer college leagues up and running. The Peninsula team includes uh, some guys from Virginia Tech, including Kevin Madden and Nick Bittison, uh, the latter who is from St. Christopher's School in Richmond, and Kyle Battle, who's from Glen Allen High. He plays at uh, Old Dominion. So it was just cool to be at the ballpark. There were about 600-plus people there. Uh, masks were required to enter. There were temperature checks when, when you entered through the gate, but once people were inside the stadium, most people removed their masks. <laughs> how, how was the spacing? I mean, I, I think you and I are on the same uh, mindset where we'd really love to get back to some form of normal, but we also want to be smart. Uh, we don't want to contribute to the spread. We want to keep our families safe and all of those types of things. So what was the spacing like and how did you feel? Did, did you feel comfortable? Did you feel safe or did you feel like, hey, this is fun to be back at the park, but I'm gambling here? Well, I I didn't park my fanny in the bleachers or anything <laughs> and invite people to be near me. I kind of roamed and kept moving. So th- that was part of my strategy. And I was I had my mask on. I think people were pretty smart about it. I mean, this ballpark holds... Uh, up upwards of 3,000 and by Virginia's phase three regulations, no more than a thousand c- can be in one place. So what the pilots have asked their fans to do is, okay, you can gather in small clusters of no more than 10 for family and friends, but then those groups need to be separated by at least six feet. And from what I saw, that was adhered to. Now, the players on the field, all of whom have been tested, by the way, and, and came back negative, but clearly you're not going to have social distancing in and around the dugout, in and around the batting cage during BP, playing pepper, things like that. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time in, in leagues like the Coastal Plain. And I did a story a few weeks ago, but the Cape Cod League that draws the top tier college baseball talent, uh, that's shut down for the summer. The Valley League, which draws really high level talent, um, 
in the area. They have teams in you know Rockingham County, that area. Uh, they are shut down for the summer. And when I talked to the the coaches and then the managers and some of the players, they said all those players were looking for other places to go now, uh, and they thought you would see some better talent trickling down through the leagues that were operating. And, you know, Coastal Plain, it's interesting. They had a, a team slated to begin a, a debut season, inaugural season for the Tri-City Chili Peppers. And that team in the Richmond area opted not to play their season, but other teams in the league are. So um, I think it's going to be, if it's done smart, and it sounds like the way you were describing is a pretty smart approach, it might be a way for some people to enjoy some real live outdoor sporting events this summer. And, and Lord knows people want that and need it. They they do, Mike. And, and people seem to be, the crowd was lively. I think folks were just happy to be at the park. This was the pilot's second home game of the season their their third overall and you mentioned the cape cod league having canceled its season back i i think it was in april i mean they were very early but nick bittison the young man from virginia tech i referenced earlier he was originally ticketed to play at the cape this summer but he once that option was was taken away he he opted to come back to the pilots he had played their last season and a lot of kids i talked to also were finding kind of pop-up leagues or summer leagues that generally didn't draw top college talent and, and were trying to get in there just to get some at bats or get some innings and uh again I, I think for those leagues and those communities it'll be a nice thing and you know a big part of summer ball is always the host family setup and that's a little bit uncomfortable and awkward right now and it's why people you know if they have the option of living at home or, or living uh, somewhere, you know, at campus or somewhere they're comfortable with and commuting to the ballpark, it, it works out pretty well. So I encourage everybody to check out David's column. It's up now at richmond.com on his night at the ballpark, which uh, brings me to my second back to normal topic of we had the 4th of July holiday. So David, how was your 4th of July? We had a good time, Mike. I'm not as adventurous a cook as you are, <laughs> but I, I, I did not uh, terribly burn the, the burgers or hot dogs or corn and the family, in, including my mother-in-law, had a good time. Oh, that's excellent. We uh, we went with the socially distant backyard thing and had two other couples over. And then uh, I grilled food and kind of did individual plates. So each couple had their own plate to pick up with their chicken and their steak and their sausage and their corn. And uh, everybody kind of kept apart but had the chance to get together and uh you know, that's the thing that I think we've all been missing, maybe most, you know, you talk about missing sports, but it's it's just that sense of community and being together. And uh, so it was good to do that and glad to hear that your family enjoyed something similar. And well, among the things that are changing, uh, there's big change coming to the ACC and, and it's coming at the top where John Swafford, the league's commissioner for the past 24 years, announced he'll be retiring next summer. In his time, he's overseen a, a massive expansion effort for the conference, the addition of schools. He was a driving force in the creation of the college football playoff. And perhaps his, his final project, pretty significant, was the launch of the ACC television network, which debuted last year. And maybe most impressively, uh, under his leadership, I think that the ACC has been able to hold on to that mantle of one of, if, if not the top college basketball conference in the nation while catching up to compete in football, which we all know how financially significant football is. We always say football money drives the bus. So 
David, you had a chance to talk to John uh, when he made his decision to retire and talk a little bit about his tenure. When you think about John Swafford and the ACC, what stands out? Mike, I think of two things. First and foremost, and this is more an overarching thought, Commissioner Swafford, to his core, is an ACC guy. He grew up in North Carolina. He's eight years old the first time he sets foot inside what is what was then called Duke Stadium to see his older brother play football for the Blue Devils. And at that point, the ACC is literally a fledgling. It's like three or four years old. And that was a Duke team that eventually landed in the Orange Bowl. And John told me at that point, he was hooked on college sports, hooked on college football, and hooked on the ACC. And a decade later, he himself enrolls at North Carolina to play football, graduates from the institution, goes to graduate school for sports administration, gets his first job as the ticket manager at the University of Virginia under then athletic director Gene Corrigan, moves back to his alma mater, eventually rises to athletic director, and then becomes commissioner of really the only conference he's known. So you will not find anyone who literally loves the ACC more than John Swafford. And then you mentioned the, the expansion, and the league was nine schools when he took over in 1997 from Gene Corrigan. And now it's at 15, 14 for football, and then Notre Dame is in for other sports. So that's that's a remarkable growth, one that's mirrored in, in other conferences. But what he really did, Mike, and I'm, I apologize for being long-winded, is when the ACC's future relevance, if not existence, was even in doubt in 2012 when Maryland bolted for the Big Ten and rumors were, you know, Clemson and Florida State were going to the Big 12 and Virginia Tech was going to the SEC and UVA and Carolina were going to the Big Ten and the whole thing was going to splinter. I mean, that's what you were reading every day from national reporters speculating on what the landscape would look like. And somehow, in a very calm, understated way, Swafford kept his people together. And today, it's it's a player on every scene in college athletics. That's such a great point, because I I think people forget, because it worked out, (laughs) uh, just how tenuous that time was for the ACC. Uh, We have a tendency to do that. If, If it all went down the drain, everyone would remember and say, remember when he couldn't save the league. But uh, that was a a breaking point, a tipping point. And to your first point about just his history with the conference, the the love he has. And it's been interesting to me in the time that I've been able to cover, which is not nearly as long as you have with John or, or know him as well as you do. He's been able to blend this real love and passion for the tradition of the ACC 
without being one of these guys who gets stuck in it, you know, and, and who says, well, this is the way it's always been. And you know, there were people who chafed at the idea of adding new schools to the ACC, who, you know, chafe about the, the pursuit of football, you know, dominance at, at the level, um, you know, they say, is it at the expense of basketball? And there's a lot of quote unquote traditionalists who might object. And, and I think John did a great job of balancing this tradition and his passion for it with making things current, making things relevant, making it a league that could survive and, and could have a future. And um, that's not always an easy thing to do. It's it's not, Mike. I think it's an excellent point, And I would add two components to it. Number one, John learned that from Gene Corrigan, hmm. who in the early 90s as commissioner understood the coming prevalence of college football and virtually mandated to his presidents, you will vote with me on this. You will add Florida State to this conference. And there was a lot of resistance, but Commissioner Corrigan essentially ascended the bully pulpit and put his fist down and said, we're getting this done. And indeed he did. And then John built upon that and imagine yourself in his position. We talked earlier about him being ACC to the core and Carolina was his school. And yet who opposed him most fiercely on expansion, but Duke and North Carolina. That, that was not easy for him to absorb and navigate. And those from schools other than in the triangle who always carp, oh, Duke and North Carolina run the ACC. Well, there is the perfect example, the perfect counter to that. Clearly they do not. If Duke and North Carolina ran the ACC, it would still be maybe a nine-team boutique basketball league, and it would be irrelevant in football. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, another one of the, the issues has been there was such a tradition and a history in Greensboro and the Greensboro Coliseum for the basketball tournament. And I give John a lot of credit for saying essentially, hey, we should be in bigger markets. We should be in Brooklyn. We should be in D.C. But we do respect the history and tradition. So we'll we'll come back to Greensboro uh, every now and then and uh, m- maybe fitting then. Um you know, or, or not fitting <laughs> that he had a chance to have a tournament in Greensboro here near the end of his tenure. Obviously it didn't get to finish or play out the way he would have liked, but um, I thought the way he, he handled that is a great sort of example of embracing the trend, embracing the business, em- embracing the future, but also not losing sight of your past and your tradition. Well, and, and what is one of his final decisions or or moves as commissioner after that tournament was canceled in Greensboro within weeks he had the league agreeing to bring the 2023 ACC tournament to Greensboro essentially to say look we have unfinished business here and you need another tournament here. We need another tournament here. And that's the, that, that's the way it, it should be. And I couldn't agree more. And just one other point on, on John's tenure, Mike, and I hear from fans all the time. 
that the ACC was behind the Big Ten and the SEC in the creation of its network and therefore is behind those two conferences financially. That is true on both counts. But what those people decline to acknowledge or realize is that the ACC was in no position to create a television network because of its smaller size, because it has such diversity of membership with small private schools that have smaller fan bases, whereas the Big Ten and the SEC are these massive land-grant institutions with large fan bases. And oh, by the way, from 2001 to 2012, the ACC produced exactly zero teams in the final top five AP college football poll. The... (laughs) Gee, who is the ESPN going to create a network with? The SEC, which is in the midst of winning seven consecutive college football national championships, or the ACC, which can't even get a team in the top five? Such so, a, it's a great point. I've heard that criticism, and I always wondered what people expected uh, the ACC and John Swafford to do when it was not a desirable television product. And, um, Certainly, John gets a lot of the credit for, for what's happening now, but the emergence of Clemson, I think, has been uh, also a huge driving force in helping him uh, get over the top on that project. Not, not only the emergence of Clemson, Mike, but in my mind, the most important, maybe not the best, although you could argue it's the best, but without question, the most important football team in ACC history is the 2013 National Champion Florida State Seminoles. Yeah. Yeah, great point, because it kind of just legitimized the league in a way that, honestly, maybe it's not fair, but in a way that anything but a championship couldn't get done. Yes. Now, I wanted to ask you, David, while we're talking about Commissioner Swafford, and and you, again, know him so well, and you've covered the league for many years and, and have such a great relationship with him, the timing of this decision, was this a decision that he had kind of made and, and was waiting to announce. Did something push him to say now is the time? Um, what, what, what makes now the time for, for John Swafford to say, this is my last year? Well, Mike, John will turn 72 in December. And he's the longest tenured commissioner in ACC history. He's got his network launched. He and his wife, Nora, have six grandchildren with a seventh on the way. They just decided it was time. And before the pandemic hit, the plan was to announce this at the ACC annual May meetings in Florida. And then obviously they did not happen and except virtually. And that prompted him to, to push it back several weeks. Well, actually more than a month. And then he, he announced uh, on June 26th. Yeah. And you mentioned the, one of his final acts there to announce that the tournament is coming back to Greensboro in 2023. And uh, John will be retired at that point, but I imagine and I hope he'll have a, a role there or an appearance there because I think uh, in particular Greensboro is a place that uh, would like to celebrate what he's done, not just for, for Greensboro and, and the conference, but I mean, there's so much overlap between the conference and Greensboro could be potentially a, a really special moment. And that kind of brings us to the, the next topic. And, and when you talk about somebody retiring, the next question is, who's next? 
And that brings us to who you got. Thanks, Mike. Let's stick with the ACC uh, as a topic just for a couple of minutes. And this doesn't have to be based in reality at all. But guys, if you had your choice of whoever you'd like to see running the ACC next. I mean, I wrote a lengthy column listing about 15 candidates. Uh, but if, if, if we're not constrained, the most headline producing hire for the ACC, it would be on the front page of virtually every newspaper and on the front page of virtually every website. And she has expressed a desire previously to be involved in sports. And as a former member of the college football playoff selection committee, and that would be Condoleezza Rice. I think that would be a really, really interesting choice. And you mentioned that it's it's not totally out of left field because she does have that connection and, and she does have that interest. I struggled with this question. Um, I think Carla Williams at UVA makes my top three. Uh, you know What she's done in a short period of time. Um, maybe you'd like to see someone with a little more ACC history. Again, not constrained by reality. So Oliver Luck is certainly somebody who – has such a connection in college athletics, such an understanding, and I think a good vision for where college athletics has to go. But if I had to pick any one person to be the next commissioner of the ACC, I would pick my co-host, David Teal, because (laughs) when it comes to passion and understanding the traditions and the history of the conference, uh, and just a guy who gets it, David, you would have my vote. Well, I, I appreciate your endorsement, Mike, and I'll have I'll have my campaign manager put that up on our website here shortly. And I assure you, I would do it for about half the price that John Swafford does it. <laughs> don't don't let ownership of the paper hear that you're willing to uh, possibly consider pay cuts because in the newspaper industry they'll jump on that. Now. If there is college football this coming season, which again, we say at every every show, we, we hope there is, but we know that there's so many other considerations, safety and health that, that have to come first before just the entertainment value. If there is college football, Virginia Tech will be among the contenders for the ACC's Coastal Division title. The, the Hokies should bring back uh, a big team, uh, big up on the offensive line, big on the defensive line, uh, experienced, deep. Um, they should be right there in the mix for that division title. That's a crown the Hokies have worn six times since the league split into divisions in 2005. And the year before that, in 2004, Virginia Tech won the league overall title. That that was the Hokies' first season in the ACC. We talked about when we were talking about Commissioner Swafford, the expansion, and Tech joined. That's right. It's been 16 years <laughs> since Jim Weaver, with, with some help from the governor and even UVA gasp for tech fans uh, helped move the Hokies from the Big East to the ACC. Since then, the Big East, as we knew it, and, and I personally loved it as a Rutgers guy, has basically collapsed. That, that old Big East doesn't exist. And the ACC, as we talked about under John Swafford's leadership, has thrived. So, David, you wrote about this this past week, last week. This has been a, a kind of win-win here for the ACC and tech with, with the move into the conference. It really, it really has, Mike. Uh, as as many people will recall, originally in the summer of two thousand three, as as the ACC started to very publicly court 
expansion candidates, the primary targets were Miami, Boston College, and Syracuse. And Virginia Tech really wasn't even in the discussion. Then Tech President Charles Steger and, and, and Jim Weaver flew to Greensboro to, to meet with Commissioner Swafford in his office. I've since been told that meeting maybe was a perfunctory 10 minutes, really. I mean, nice to see you. We have no interests. Have a nice life. And then politics got involved, as, as you referenced. And lo and behold, the Hokies became part of the ACC. And Virginia Tech, Miami, and Boston College became the, the three newcomers, BC, a year after the Hokies and Hurricanes. But you look at what they have contributed to the league, and it's a landslide. Virginia Tech's won 28 conference championships. Miami's won 11. Boston College has won one. Now, hey, Boston College has three national championships in men's ice hockey during that time. But still, there is no denying what Virginia Tech has brought to this league. And and vice versa, by the way, because the, the Hokies are, are much more uh, cash flush and it's helped them with their facilities. It's helped them with their Olympic sports. Before joining the ACC, Virginia Tech's average Director's Cup finish, the all-sports standings, was 90th. And since then, it's 41st. That's a big jump. And this is one of those topics where, and and there's so many people, um, there's so many people that deserve credit and deserve, uh, you know, kudos for kind of getting this done. But I got to think about Frank Beamer and, and, and what he turned the football program into. I mean, without that, uh, and maybe without Michael Vick and without that seat, like maybe that's not as a, maybe tech isn't as palatable or as attractive an option uh, for anybody. And, and I mentioned in the beginning of this topic, you know, the big East at that point was one of those conferences that you didn't know about their future, what was going to happen. And the way it turned out, you know, who knows what kind of shape Virginia tech would be in had they stayed with the big East and seeing now that football league eventually end and become basketball only. And um, you know, where might they be? What might've happened? But um, it's another part, I think of, of the Frank Beamer legacy. Absolutely. And though ironically, and you, you mentioned that in 2004 and in, in its first season of membership, Virginia Tech won the outright ACC championship, winning at Miami in the regular season finale, ironically enough. But in 2002 and three and 2001, the Hokies had struggled in the Big East. I mean, they were lights out with Michael Vick in 99 and 2000. And then comparatively, by Frank Beamer standards, came three pretty lean seasons in, in which the Hokies were little better or even below 500 in the Big East. And, and so much so that the preseason poll in Tech's first season in the ACC had, had the Hokies pick sixth out of 11 teams, right smack in the middle. And lo and behold, they, they rise up and win it. Yeah, and that's, you know, the interesting thing to me about Tech being in the league and the, and the ACC is you look at the rivalry with Virginia. 
I think that's only been enhanced because, you know, years like this year where the division title's on the line. And um, I just think there's more to what's already a great rivalry. And, and if they were in different conferences, it would still be enjoyable. But I think it's enhanced that rivalry. Uh, and I, I think about the ACC, yes, it stretches from as far north as Boston and, yes, as far south as, as Miami. But it's still the Atlantic coast, right? It's not one of these leagues that sort of lost sight of, of its geography entirely and um, has people going, you know, cross country. I, I enjoy that about the ACC, that it's uh, it's still sort of a regional, <laughs> if you can say that, regional conference. It is, Mike. And without question, sharing a conference has enhanced the Hokies-Cavaliers rivalry. I mean, just look at last Black Friday. I mean, it's the de facto Coastal Division title game for the third time um, since Virginia Tech joined the conference. You don't get that when you're in opposing conferences. And not only that, when Tech was in the Big East, there were often times when the Tech-UVA game was midseason. It, it was as likely to be in September or October as it was in, in late November. And the, the late George Welsh, God rest his soul, the former Virginia coach, he and I used to go back and forth about this. I'd say, coach, the tech game needs to be the last game. And he, he'd get all cranky on me and say, <laughs> no, Maryland, ACC game. And hey, you know, maybe he was right. But now it's a conference game, and now it's always, I would think, going to be the regular season finale. It's the, the best of both worlds there with them being in the same league. And speaking of UVA, UVA just now uh, this week joined the growing list of schools bringing their football players back to campus. They brought them back for voluntary workouts. Those are the sort of conditioning-focused practices. Uh, they actually got started today, Monday, July 6th. And the Cavaliers were, were one of the last AC school, ACC schools to get to this point. What do you think of Bronco Mendenhall's approach, his uh, kind of take on COVID, the spread, the risk, um, and the fact that they've now come to this decision? Well, I don't think this is Bronco Mendenhall's call by any stretch. I think this was presidential Jim Ryan and AD Carla Williams conferring with their medical people. And and clearly, Bronco has input here. And he's been very cautious about this. And I think history will prove him right and UVA's approach right, because you see the rash of positive tests that that have popped at schools that came back earlier. So I, I think, well, well, we'll get to it later. I doubt we're going to have fall football anyway. So when, when, when they came back, probably isn't going to have much impact on the season at hand. Yeah, you know, we will. We'll, we'll talk more. We, we feel like we talk about this every week, but we're just seeing this in Major League Baseball right now, David, and teams that are coming back and then they do their COVID testing and then they're waiting for the results and the Nationals, the Astros delaying, uh, you know, workouts because they're waiting on test results. It, it just, 
it seems like quite a mountain to scale to, to logistically get this done. And you got some some insight here because you had to write a column last week. You spoke with some of the people behind the decision-making process in the ACC, maybe most notably Wake Forest's uh, athletics healthcare administrator, Murphy Grant. In, in I, what I found dramatically sobering words, he said, hey, one individual could shut down an entire team. In other words, one, one positive test you may have to bag this whole thing for a period. David, what are some of the takeaways you had from from that call and that, that conversation? Well, Mike, I think intuitively we understood that, that one reckless individual could spread COVID so much through a team that you would have to shut it down. But to hear it mm-hmm. from a healthcare professional and an ACC institution in what you, I think, rightly described as sobering terms was pretty powerful, I thought. And Murphy Grant serves on the ACC's COVID-19 advisory panel. I've been trying to reach anyone on that group that would want to speak publicly. And then when I saw that Murphy was going to be appearing on a National Sports Media Association webinar. I jumped, and uh, fortunately, there, there weren't a lot of participants, so I was able to, to ask some questions. And I, I think one element that, that he confirmed to me that I had long suspected is, one, the ACC wants to develop a conference-wide protocol for testing for in-season, whenever that might be. And two, if a prospective non-conference opponent does not meet that standard, there's a really good chance that game's not going to be played. And that's another element, and I know you've talked about this before, but the idea of there not really being central leadership in college football, if we get to the point where we kick off and there's a football in the air and, and they're going to play every conference ostensibly at this point, every conference is going to have their own policies and procedures and their own way about it. And if you feel strongly that your way is right, why would you be willing to, to go and, and play a non-conference school that's doing it differently and maybe not wrong or right, but, but um, you know, it's just seems odd to me that we're as far along as we are without some sort of, uh, national consortium of getting together and saying, if we're going to do it, here's how we're all going to do it. But that's complicated. That would be a bear of, of a thing to put together. And um, it's just one more obstacle. And I, I know one of the the ideas that's been kind of kicked around lately is pushing the season back to the spring. And, um, you know, there's obstacles there, David, but what do you, is that feasible? The idea of, Hey, we're not going to play in the fall. We're going to play football in the spring. I think it is feasible, Mike. But with, with only, at least in my mind, this essential concession, that being either or both the 2020 and 2021 seasons would then have to be condensed, say, to eight to ten regular season games. Because there is no way, in my opinion, that you can ask essentially an unpaid labor force to play two complete college football seasons in calendar 21. That's not an ask you would make 
of the NFL. That's not an ask that the NFL Players Association would even remotely consider approving because of health and safety concerns. There's no chance that college football can play 24 regular season games in a 12-month period. I just do not see it. I agree completely. And we hear so much about player health and safety being like the number one thing on the NCAA checklist. Well, that would not be healthy. It would not be safe. And uh, I do think that that, that's going to be a huge obstacle if they choose to go that route. And, you know, another interesting aspect of this is is what they will ultimately do with the fans. And uh, I'll tell you, I spent the morning um, today interviewing season ticket holders at Virginia Tech and UVA, um, just gauging kind of their mindset of, Hey, do you hope to be in the stands? Are you nervous about being in the stands? Do you think it should be 50% capacity? How would you feel about the different options that are being considered? And I thought it was interesting, David, in in my conversations with a number, a a pretty good group of season ticket holders, there's a lot of different opinions. I mean, I talked to one guy who is a UVA football season ticket holder for 33 years who said, it doesn't matter what they decide, he's not going to games this year. Uh, you know, he's got questions maybe with the money, what he'll do to hold this spot to be able to come back next season. But he does not see a way that it would be safe to be in the stadium. I talked to a, a t- season ticket holder at Tech, uh, been a ticket holder for 16 years and told me if they let fans back in the, the stands, he's going to be there. He wants to be one of that group. And he had questions about safety and procedure and how you do it. And, you know, things as, as seemingly trivial, but truly important as, you know, the men's room, the line in the men's room, the line at a concession stand. And, but his ultimate decision was he'd like to, to be there for games. And fans are in an interesting spot here where if schools choose to allow them in, then those fans are going to have to decide for themselves what is safe and what isn't. And there's so many options out there. It's hard for us to even speculate what might be the case for fans if they play a season. I think one thing is certain, Mike, and that is if they start a fall season, there is no chance that those stadiums will be remotely close to capacity. In the spring, maybe. Fall, no. What I'm what I'm interested in, I don't know how personal you, you got with folks, did the answers they gave you reflect their ages it's a really good point and and to an extent it did although i will say two of the people who were adamant about not returning were adamant because the party they go with the group that they tailgate with that they sit in the stands with um included their fathers their uncle older Mm -hmm. family members and it was why they were so i did get the sense that people um i'm trying to do the numbers in my head but i'd say 45 and under we're a little more open to, hey, if they're 50%, if they're 40%, I could see myself going. Um, I even had somebody say, I, I could see myself taking my kids. Um, but I also had a, a guy who was, I'm trying to remember, I, I believe he was in his mid-40s who told me he would not bring his kids and, and didn't think he would go because of the exposure. Um, and then I had somebody in their 50s tell me that if it was safe, they would be there. So yeah, I think there's an age factor. And, and I think, and this is you know, not an indictment on any of these fans. It's sort of an indictment on the country right now. But it seemed like everybody was working from different facts. Everybody thought they knew 
exactly how the virus spreads and exactly what it is. And nobody's definition matched up. So, you know, people were saying things like, well, since, you know, at my age, I'd be safe or since it doesn't spread this way. And I don't think we know definitively, David, enough to say what the virus does and doesn't do, how it spreads exactly and how it doesn't. Um, but it is alarming how many people think they have a good, firm grasp on it. And, and maybe, uh, maybe they don't. I think, if anything, the last few months have told us that not even the scientists have a, a firm grasp on this virus. And uh, as, as one of the panelists on the webinar I was a part of last week said, you know, trying to make the virus fit our academic calendar is essentially a fool's errand because the virus is having none of it. That's a, that's a great point when you hear schools talk about, well, what about for basketball? What about if we push here? What if we move our Thanksgiving break or our Christmas break? And uh, to your point, we just we just don't know where this thing is going exactly. And uh, because of that, the information changes day to day, hour to hour. And that brings us to a very familiar topic for Take It or Leave It. All right. Thanks, Mike. You both have sounded pretty pessimistic about the likelihood of seeing college football this fall. So let's let's gauge where we are right now. We're headed into the middle of July already. Let me start with Mike. You believe the college football season will begin in September. Take it or leave it. I'm going to leave it. I want to take it because I want to see it. But I just I think as we talk about it more and more and as we get more and more comfortable with the things that would have to happen to do it safely, we run into more and more obstacles that show us that that's not realistic. We, we run into more things. We say, if you do this, this, and this, it'll be okay. And then you realize, well, if you do this, problem A causes problem B. And I just think that the season it would produce would be so ragged and so all over the place. And I mean that with, with forfeits or with teams finding out on Thursday that their starting quarterback is out because he's quarantined or all their running backs are quarantined, uh, you know, or, or you get to game week and you don't have a place kicker. I just, I think the havoc that this situation would wreck on the season, I just don't see it being feasible. I think it would be so disjointed. So I'm sorry because I want to take it and I want to have college football, but right now I got to leave it. All right, David, take it or leave it. Guys, I will emphatically leave it. And I believe the first domino will fall Wednesday when the Ivy League is expected to announce that it is moving all its fall sports to the spring. And as you will recall, the first conference to postpone or to cancel, excuse me, its basketball tournaments back in March was the Ivy League. And I think we're going to see the Ivies again as the trendsetter. You know, it's a trend that none of us want to see, but it, it may make the most sense. And I'll tell you, David, I did a story uh, two weeks ago, I guess, on a uh, women's lacrosse player at Virginia Tech. And they were playing in Ivy League school. Um, and that Ivy League had already announced that the season was going to be over. They were going to play that day, and that would be it. And they said they saw the other team in tears, kind of outside their locker room, waiting to get on that lacrosse field. And uh, 
and the Virginia Tech players were telling me that they felt this sense of sadness for them, for the opponent, but kind of happiness of and relief of like, well, we're in the ACC, our season is going to continue. <laughs> and then the next morning, obviously found out that that wasn't the case. And um, I don't think you want to get to a point where you're starting and stopping and you've got half playing and half not. I just, again, we, we all want sports back. We all miss it. We all want to join David in the stands for a baseball game because that sounds great. But uh, college football in the fall, I hate to end on a down note. It just seems very unlikely. And that's our show for this week. So thanks for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts. Just find the RTD Podcast channel. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers and a sports-only option at richmond.com. And your support right now means uh, maybe more than it ever has. Local journalism needs that support. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and I again in two weeks. Thank you.